Um, well, the Bible reading today, as you see, is from 1 Peter again, chapter 2, um, starting at verse 11 through to verse 7 and chapter 3. Page 1221. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers.
thought I might ask Colin if he'd like to preach on that. <laughs> Just uh, want to flag for you that uh, obviously we're dealing with some pretty heavy stuff today. Uh, we're going to have a little bit of an opportunity for Q&A after. So if there are issues that are raised by the passage, things that you think I haven't explained very well, uh, there's going to be an opportunity for you to ask, for everyone to hear. Uh, but if you want to take up stuff with me uh, after, the, after the service, you can do that as well. Uh, or give me a buzz uh, during the week if you want to take things further. Uh, I am aware that this is a, it's a, a vexed issue for our culture, and I'm going to try and handle it very delicately and carefully. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we've got a bit of work to do. Yes? Okay, let's dive in. Uh, we've been exploring the idea of true life out of 1 Peter, and we come today uh, to the second half of really what was a two-part sermon. Last week, we looked at the first part of this passage, and particularly the dynamic that drove uh, the application that we're spending probably more time today looking at. Uh, today, we're going to look at the idea of power. How we as Christians think about it, uh, what to do when we have it, uh, what we do when we don't have it. Uh, when we see the power of power, uh, power brings fear, distortion, corruption, uh, abuse. So I'm going to spend some time this morning just really briefly trying to very concisely summarise last week's sermon because the two do go together. Uh, and then I'm going to have got four points. Number one, power corrupts. Number two, when we lack, or when power we lack, when power we have. Number three, and number four, true power. So let's go really fast. Uh, some of you may be wondering uh, if I can summarise last week's sermon really fast. Why didn't I just preach the summary last week? You, no, shut up, Ben. Stop grinning at me. Anyway, you remember, hopefully. Peter goes through and he tells us that we have an identity through our faith in Christ. And in verse 9, he tells us that this is, we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And that identity flows into uh, a purpose. He develops this idea of priesthood and he tells us that we are a priestly people. And as priests, we offer spiritual sacrifices, not just praise to God, but uh, the verse that Colin picked up that is there in chapter uh, 2, verse 12. He tells us to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is what we are called to do. We are called to be on the front foot to engage with our communities in order to bring God's blessing for his glory. Okay? You are proactively on the front foot to bring God's blessing uh, for his glory. But there's an enemy. It's there at the start of this verse. Abstain from sinful desires, Peter tells us. That is the idea of we have sin in our hearts. It takes fear and fear makes us back away from that calling. Fear threatens us with loss. We fear those who we believe can rob us of what we need to be happy. 
And so fear makes us withdraw. Fear makes us just blend in and lose that priestly calling. But we saw we have in Christ an antidote to fear. He has broken sin's hold on us. We are no longer its slave. And through his death and resurrection, we have a secure hope. We have an identity in Christ that the world can't touch. We have an inheritance and a future that is kept for us and we are kept for it. We are secure. And so Peter tells us as aliens and strangers, we are actually set free to serve, to love, to bless in our communities because we are secure in God's grace. There you have it, a two-minute summary of last week's sermon. Okay, where do we get to? Power corrupts. This blessing, this being on the front foot and the fear that comes with being out there comes because we live in a society that really is a dog-eat-dog kind of world. Power permeates every relationship you are in, formally or informally. Your bosses at work, the government over us, the police force on the streets, your peer groups, your marriages, your families. Power permeates every relationship, both formally and informally. And we know, we know what the abuse of power looks like. Royal commissions, the abuse of power through institutions, through banks, what's next? We know that power is abused and we have a deep fear of powerlessness. We don't like it when we are helpless. Do you remember the, uh, the movie Jurassic Park? The new one's coming out, so I thought this was a topical reference. Remember the opening movie where all of a sudden there's a T-Rex on the loose and the kids are in the car. Remember that moment? And they're absolutely petrified and the T-Rex's head is there. We might think that when we're faced with power, that terror is the right response. But Jesus tells us, no. We might fear that as we face the power that is out there in our world, whatever that is, whether it's the power that you experience in the relationships around you or the government as a whole, I don't know what you fear. But you might fear like the children before that T-Rex. You have that terror. But we hate it. Because we are being told that our future depends upon us. Our society is telling us, to uh, rip off an old poet, that we are the masters of our fate, we are the captains of our soul, and it depends upon us. And so we fear powerlessness. And it was even more so in the first century of the Roman Empire. There was naked power on display. Roman imperial might. The architecture screamed that they were in control. The line of crucifixes outside the cities that you lived in showed you what happened if you took on their power. It was vividly on display. And if you weren't a citizen, there were few protections. Look at this. This is Paul from Acts 20. As they stretched him out to flog him, they tie him around a post Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who has not even been found guilty? Do you know what's disturbing about this? 
What's the implication? That if he was not a Roman citizen, it was totally fine to flog him, to imprison him, to abuse him. If you were a citizen, you had some rights, but you lived in a world where raw power was on display. And as a Christian, a world that was becoming increasingly hostile, a world in which you were increasingly vulnerable. But Peter writes, live such good lives. Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That is what he calls us to do. To avoid, to run away is to deny our calling. To just blend in is to deny our purpose. Peter tells us to be on the front foot. Now I want to, uh, I want to just step back from our passage and just talk more generally, just briefly about a couple of things that help us frame the examples that Peter gives us. Collins gives us an example this morning about fire. Now, fire is not bad, is it? Fire is an example of power. You can do fire, cold morning, you can light the fire, you can sit there, you can warm your hands, or you can burn your neighbour's house down. Fire in itself is not good or evil, it's what you do with it. Power in itself is not good or evil. It's what you do with it. And we as Christians need to recognise that God has ordained power structures within society. In marriage, in the family, in society, in the church. And I want to give you three concepts with which to think it through. God is the one who grants authority. Okay, God gives authority to people. He gives authority to governments, Romans 13 will tell us, so that they can administer justice. But when he gives authority, it is always with a view to a particular responsibility. God does not appoint tyrants. God gives authority for a particular purpose. And the purpose is in line with why he set things up. He wants, as Peter tells us, governments to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. There is a responsibility that matches that authority. And with that, there is an accountability. When God ordains human authority... He gives them responsibility, it's got limits on it, and it will be held to account by him. Helpful to have those things in mind. Because what happens when we get authority, when we get power, the sin in us longs to use that power to meet our ends. And we see this again and again and again in the lives of others, in the lives of our community and in our lives. That's number one. Another quick aside. Peter, Peter isn't in the business of telling us exactly what to do in each and every situation. We like law. We are naturally wired this way. I've had Christians, just tell me what I need to do. Can I just say, Peter doesn't just tell you what you need to do. Peter presents us with principles that he then works out in three very particular examples. Citizens or members of a community, slaves with their masters and wives with their husbands 
in first century Rome. What he doesn't do is lay down timeless principles for us to follow. God, through Peter, has given us principles that we can discern and then we have to do the hard work to work out what that looks like, not as first century Romans, but as 21st century Australians. How do we see that work out on the ground? That's number two. We need to work hard. Number three is that as Peter lays down these principles, they are like the railway tracks, okay? And our lives are like the train. Okay, what we try to do so often is we see the command, we see the principle, and we try and do it on our own strength. Now, it doesn't work very well. You ever tried throwing a train? Even if you get it to budge, it's got none of the power, none of the energy that a train is actually designed. We need something to drive that train. And the thing that drives the Christian life of obedience along the tracks of God's purposes is grace-fueled, love-fired engine. That's what we need. And that was what last week spent time in. So don't just go away with a couple of rules and I'm going to try harder. Go away and see God's purposes and see how in Christ He's given us everything we need to live in that. Let's dive in. When power we lack. I want to spend most time talking about the husband-wife thing because I think that's where you guys have got most questions. There's not many slaves out there. Any slaves? No. no. A few few guys going, their wives not seeing it. No, anyway. Let's see. Let's, Let's... discern the principles to start with okay first principle no human authority is absolute no human authority is ultimate and as christians we have a higher allegiance in each of these situations you will see peter reminds citizens slaves wives that their ultimate form of authority that they are submitting to is actually Christ. It's not the government, it's not the slave master, it's not the husband, it's Christ. And so our allegiance to Christ nuances every other human allegiance. No human allegiance can call us to disobey our heavenly master. That's number one. Number two, principle. Peter has a very high regard for God's glory. He wants us to live out there to achieve God's glory because ultimately as God is glorified, his people are blessed. Our greatest desire should be that God is glorified. And so Peter has this, not only uh, an evangelistic motivation, and that is there, but he wants to see God's name honoured. And that is there. Number three, you will see in all of these situations that as citizens and as slaves and as wives, we are free. Let me draw your attention to verse 16 of chapter 2. 
He says, live as free people. Do not use your freedom as a cover for evil. Live as God's slaves. The emperor believed that he owned the empire. Husbands owned wives and slaves were literally owned by their masters. But Peter says, no, you're free. You are free. And so when he tells them that they are to submit, they submit themselves. They actually work out what that looks like on the ground. You notice that Peter doesn't spell it out often in particulars. He leaves it to them under God with the wisdom that comes through obedience to the gospel that is granted through the spirit to work out the particulars. But we are free. And so Peter says, use your freedom, fit in where you can, but where you can't, know that God gives you what you need to endure in the face of suffering. The other thing I want to draw your attention to, and I've already said it, but I'm going to say it again, is that Peter is writing to first century Roman Christian, not 21st century, so we need to do the work. We need to work out what it means to live in in a right way related to those who have authority over us and those over whom we have authority in the 21st century. And it will not line up necessarily the same way. So this is why I'm going to allow that Q&A. This is what maybe morning tea is, as you guys share together about the situations and seek wisdom from one another and work this out together. Citizens, let's dive in. We need to know that as citizens, what Paul says, he says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Be a citizen in the Roman Empire, be a member of that community, not with your allegiance to Caesar, but your allegiance to Christ. For the Lord's sake, submit yourself to every human authority, whether the emperor or the governor. Our allegiances are always shaped by that higher allegiance. And the idea behind it is that no one will speak ill of Christians. Christians were seen as disloyal. Christians were seen as haters of humanity because they didn't join in with what everyone else was doing because they saw it was contradictory. But I would say, Peter is saying here, Christians should be better citizens because they acknowledge an emperor that is higher than Caesar. They can't obey him in all things. They won't obey him in all things. And suffering may come. But there is a higher allegiance, which means that for the Lord's sake, they will submit. For us as Australians, or at least permanent residents living here or visitors, what this is saying is that we should be better citizens of the Commonwealth of Australia than the non-Christians out there. We should pay our taxes more freely. We should do our duties as they don't cut across our allegiance to Christ more willingly because we want him to be honoured. Let's move on. Slaves, from verse 18. Slaves, once again, are called to submit themselves. We need to acknowledge Peter is not endorsing slavery here. With the husbands and wives, with the citizens, 
Peter acknowledges that God has ordained authority in the society and authority in marriage, but he doesn't do that here. And we need to remember that it is actually Bible-believing Christians like this guy, William Wilberforce, who led in England the charge against slavery. And so Peter is dealing with the realities of first century. He says, you're a slave... You have no power to change your situation. How do you live? And he says, live in a godly way in the midst of an ungodly system. Submit, even if you suffer for it. And the amazing thing there, and you'll see it in verse 19 and verse 20. He says, he repeats this phrase, it is commendable. Literally what he's saying is, it is grace towards God and what I think he's saying is not that God goes hey it's great that you've hung in there but he's actually I think saying that God is saying I can use this your suffering is not meaningless it's not in vain when you suffer for what is good it is not just giving me glory as you set an example of your allegiance to a higher master But I can work that in you. I can use that suffering to bring about my glory in your life. A guy called the name of Sinclair Ferguson said it's vital that we understand that these afflictions are controlled by the hand of our sovereign father. God is at work in our pain. Romans 8.28. Remember that one. Otherwise, we will not see them in their true perspective and our assurance of God's love will sink under them. He says to the slaves, even your suffering, as horrible as that may be, is actually used by God. So don't think it's meaningless. Don't think it's purposeless. Let's dig in. That's a very brief look at slaves, at citizens. Wives. I don't know how you felt as Karen read that. Probably felt sorry that my wife was the one who was actually reading this to you. Can I say, obviously, this is a massively controversial topic for us. But I want you to recognise something. The reason why it is controversial is because we live in a society that has been shaped by Christian values for 2,000 years. Western civilization has been shaped by the biblical ideas of equality and the value of the individual. So we go, oh, how could Peter say such things? Can I say the reason we react like that is because our culture has been shaped by the very thing that we are reacting against. We don't see just how revolutionary this actually is. So let me explore it, and you can ask questions if you want to go further. In the first century, if you were a non-Christian husband, to have a Christian wife was a source of shame. Because there was a, as head of the household, everyone in your household followed the gods that you followed. And all of a sudden, your wife is saying, no, 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 I follow Jesus. You were not meant to, Christian wife, have friends that were not your husband's friends. 
And all of a sudden, you are part of a community, a church, brothers and sisters with other people who your husband is not connected maybe to. And so as you live faithfully as a Christian woman, you are bringing shame within that context. And so you can understand where persecution and hardship comes from. The wife was much more subject to the husband's whim than in our culture. There were no laws really protecting the rights of women. You moved from your father's household to your husband's household and you were largely under his authority and power. A very difficult situation for a Christian woman. But what Peter does here, like with the citizens, he acknowledges that not all authority is bad, that God has actually ordained authority within marriage. And Ephesians 5, Paul unpacks that more fully. But here he's saying, even when it's a non-Christian husband, even when there is injustice, submit yourselves. Choose in your freedom for the glory of God to actually live in a way that brings your non-Christian husband, perhaps, even to see the Lord that you follow, the husband to which you are bound spiritually, is actually someone he also should embrace. Live uh, to your own husband so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviours of their wives. Peter acknowledges that higher allegiance, the reverence and the piety of their lives. And he calls them when that authority of the husband doesn't contradict the authority of their heavenly husband, Christ, they submit. He encourages them. He encourages them to do this voluntarily as free. But he doesn't tell them exactly how it works out. This means that you'll do A, B, C, D, E. There's freedom to work that out. Every relationship looks different. There's freedom for that to be explored. But what there isn't freedom to do is actually just to throw off restraints and say, I'm done with this, goodbye. There is an evangelistic motivation. There is a desire that God is glorified. Jesus calls the shots. He encourages them. There is a beauty of godliness. Let your lives be such a thing that they commend Christ. But we need to recognise that this is a different situation to ours. The wife couldn't just pack her bags. The law wouldn't defend her against her husband. Different situation. What this is not saying is that if you are in a situation where there is abuse, that the Christian thing, the right thing, the godly thing is just to suck it up. Can I say that is, that is not the biblical thing? Because we are not in that situation. She, in the first century, may not have had a choice. And Peter commends her to pursue godly living, to trust God who would vindicate her. Our situation is different. Statistically, there are people here this morning 
facing domestic abuse. Can I say, talk to someone. Come and talk to me. Grab Colin afterwards. Get help. Because this is not something that you as a Christian are called to submit to. You live in the power relationships that you find yourself in a way that honours God. That honours God. What other situations do you find yourselves in? Well, you can apply this across. Peer groups, workplaces, families, where you maybe are on the less powerful end. Seek to acknowledge authority in a way to bring God glory as you seek to bless. It may bring suffering, but Jesus' words are do not fear. Through the gospel, we are secure. We have nothing that they can take. Do not fear. There's lots more I could say. But let's move on to verse 7. Now, verse 7 is almost harder than verses 1 to 6 because it contains some ways you sort of think, I wish I could sit down with Peter and say, can you phrase that differently? Uh, But it's there, so let's read it. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect, literally treat them with honour as the weaker vessel, the weaker partner, as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so nothing may hinder your prayer. The controversy stakes has just gone up. Every woman in the room is offended. Uh, What on earth is Peter talking about? Let me say, before you take offence at weaker partner, he is commending the equal value and dignity of every woman. She is an heir with you of the gracious gift of life. Genesis 1 has man and woman both together equally in God's image. There is no inferiority, superiority here at play. Must recognise that. So what on earth is this weaker partner? Let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying that it's moral. He's not saying that it's spiritual. He's not saying that it's intellectual, that guys are smarter than girls. Well, we all know that's probably not true, is it? What is he saying? Well, physical. I could have an arm wrestle with Karen. I will beat her every single time. It would not be possible, I think, for my wife to physically outmatch me. Uh, It's just, she is a weaker partner. Yeah, come on. You could try. Let's go. But I think even more than physically, what he's saying is that she, in that culture particularly, but I think still in ours, is actually socially more vulnerable. Women were in a position where it would have been very easy for men who had the social and the physical power to exploit. And knowing that sin takes our, when we have power, sin takes that and lets us misuse it. Knowing that tendency, Peter here is saying, husbands, recognize that your wife is not in the position that you are in. She doesn't have the power and the opportunities that you have. And so give her honour. Live with her with understanding and compassion. Use your power to bless her. 
That is what Peter is calling every husband to do. Paul would say it differently. He says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her, laying down his life for her. Husband, this morning, do not hear Peter say, my wife must submit to me. Hear Peter saying, you use your power. You use the authority that God has granted you to love and serve your wife. Never to abuse. Never to get your own way. But to lay your life down for her in service. That is what Peter is saying. Make your wife feel so loved that it never even occurs to her that she's vulnerable. That she never feels threatened by you. That is what Peter is saying. Men, we need to hear this. We need to love our wives. There's lots of other situations we could extrapolate this out. This is not just husbands and wives. This is every situation where you have power. Maybe you've got people under you at work. Maybe you're just the big brother to the little brothers and the little sisters and you've just got a bit more beef behind you. What's the power that you have? How do you use that power to bless? And it's interesting. Peter here is saying that the way we live and the way we live with others affects our relationship with God so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Better translation, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Be hindered by what? Be hindered by whom? Peter's saying, don't expect that God is going to give you the thumbs up and answer your prayers. If you're abusing those, he's entrusted to your care. How we live matters. Let's move on really quickly. Because I said we need a train that will drag, we need an engine that will drag our train down the tracks. Trying to move it ourselves doesn't really work. And the one who had true power, the one who had the power of creation, the one who in John chapter 1 is the word who was with God and was God, that one, he submitted not only to his father's will, but for his father's sake, he submitted to unjust human authority. He engaged in order to bless and he trusted. He trusted God's vindication and the father raised him from the dead and it is in his name it is in his name and through faith in him that we have an identity and a hope and a destiny that is is secure and so we are set free as we live in the gospel to both submit to authority even if it is unjust if that glorifies God, so be it. But to exercise authority in order to bless others so that others might see God in us. Peter is saying, God has got your back. Serve him. Trust him. I urge you, he says, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God 
on the day he visits us. Amen. I'm aware I went a bit long, but I didn't feel I could even drop bits of that out. Questions? Colin's going to come up. He's got the microphone. Is there something that someone wants clarification on, wants to push a bit further with? You can always grab me afterwards, as I said, or contact me during the week. I'm very happy to sit down as well, but very happy to answer questions. I'll just get the mic on you, David, so everyone else can hear your question as well. Thanks, Cameron. Um, are, are all authority figures, or have all authority figures throughout history been ordained by God, as Paul alludes to? And are there limits to which we should submit to authority figures yep. as Christians? Yep. So let me go back to this thing. Authority, responsibility, accountability. So you're referring to Romans 13. Um, Interestingly, when Paul writes to the Romans, uh, the emperor Nero is on the throne. Now, most of us will know that Nero was not exactly an example of political stability uh, or niceness. Uh, And so Paul writes about how human institutions are established by God. Um, The authority within society, yes, is established. Uh, so God has actually decreed that in human society there will be government, okay? Uh, That is authority. It has particular purposes, and Peter's worked it out here without turning up Romans 13, but you can look at that. But there's accountability as well. And so God is sovereign in that nothing is happening outside of his purposes. Uh, Humans abuse that authority, and they deny that responsibility. So guys like Nero... They run the shop the way they want to. But the, the thing that we have here is that there is an accountability. So has God decreed that Malcolm Turnbull at the moment is the Prime Minister of Australia? Yes, he has. Uh, is my, Malcolm Turnbull entrusted by God with a particular responsibility? Yes, he is. Does he acknowledge that? Well, not sure. Uh, but it doesn't really matter. He will be held accountable for it. In the same way as Nero, is the same way as... The worst dictators. Uh, what we don't want to do is say God has not ordained government within society. But obviously, there are governments that exercise that in line with his authority and resp- recognizes his responsibility. So you get guys like Wilberforce, as a member of parliament, pursues his, uh, what he perceives his God given call. Uh, to pursue a number of different aims. One of those was the emancipation of slaves. Um, And there's an accountability. So you can see it used well, you can see it used poorly. But authority is there. Uh, We don't submit to authority that countermands the higher authority that we have to Christ. So if they say, you can't read your Bible. Well, no, sorry. You can't meet together as Christians. No, sorry. Okay. Okay. Uh, we find ways around those kind of things and we accept that maybe we may be in a situation where we suffer for that. Um, But uh, if they say, okay, the taxation rate goes up 10% or something, well, we don't like paying that, but we pay it because we're citizens. Um, Does that make sense? Yep. Anything else? Feel free to catch me after... Oh, okay, Carolyn. 
comment really, um, more about um, the way yeah, husbands and wives and, and respect, or well, respect for women in general, but I always find it amazing and very encouraging the way Jesus always responded to women mm. and his, his respect towards women. Um, I always find that that's a helpful thing to go back and look at. And we don't see just how counterculture that was, uh, how radical that was. The fact, and I didn't bring it out, but the fact that Peter even bothers addressing women and addressing slaves, both of whom were seen as maybe lacking moral capacity to make valid decisions. So Plato wouldn't bother talking to, to wives, he'd just talk to husbands. Um, we just don't see how revolutionary this is because of 2,000 years of Christianity shaping our culture. Okay, I'm going to sit down. We're going to finish, but come and grab me afterwards if you want to talk further.